We are on a mission to fill Trustville with Christians who have discovered their calling and will fulfill the works that God has for them. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the commission given to every Christian around the world. That's your purpose. That's why you are alive, is to continue that mission. But within that, this congregation has made it our business to seek out those that are lost and those that are drifting, bring them in, train them up, make disciples out of them, help them identify what God has called them to do, identify the gifts He's given to be able to do them, and then to provide them with opportunities so that they can go out and live what God has called them to do. Ephesians 2.10, there are works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 7.17, let each man live the life to which God has called him and assigned him. Colossians 1, 9-12, I pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's why we're here. That's what we're doing. As you think about the big picture of this church, what are we trying to do? We're trying to help everybody that walks through those doors find what God's called them to do and then help them do it. And today we're going to move on a little bit, and the, the title, if you like the title, is Priority. Last week's identity, this week is Priority. We're going to talk about the most important things that characterize our ministry. That might be another good title, Most Important Things. We are going to talk about some important things. We're also going to talk about some of the most important things. But we're going to start out by talking about the most, most important thing around here. So maybe you can have triangle-shaped notes if you like. What is the most, most important thing that informs the way we do ministry at this church, that informs the way we obey that commission? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, right? That is the most, most important thing. The gospel. Gospel is an old Anglo word that means good spiel. You heard what a spiel is, right? It's like a speech, and it's a good spiel. It's a gospel. It's a gospel. It means good news. The good news about Jesus Christ. Now you might say, what is that? I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to tell you right now. Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, who was born to a virgin named Mary. He lived a sinless life on the earth, and he taught us the truth about God, about righteousness, about life. He was crucified on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for sins and then rose from the dead so that he could offer eternal life and forgiveness to anybody who asks. That's the good news. That's the story. Jesus came. He died. He rose again. He ascended and he's coming back again someday. And the way that you receive forgiveness of all your sins and a change of destination and eternity in heaven is through faith. We spent a lot of time last week looking at Ephesians 2.10, which is that there are works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But what are the two verses that come before that? Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. What does grace mean? It's a gift. It's a gift. I always think of like a queen. Like, I'm going to grace you with this, right? I'm going to give it to you. By grace you have been saved through faith. That's belief. And this is not your own doing. It's not something you worked up. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. And haven't you found that people who believe that you're saved by works tend to do an awful lot of boasting? Yeah. They might not start around talking about how I'm awesome and I'm great and I do all these things, but they're sure to talk about their denomination with a little bit of boasting, won't they? 
All the other churches are just falling off. They don't understand what you've got to do to be saved. This is God's favorite church. I was like, really? Because the Lord said, I saved you specifically so that you would not be able to do that. By grace, I gave you a gift, which I had to purchase with the blood of my son. Now that I've purchased it, I'm giving it to you. What do I got to do to get it? Believe. Faith. Believe the story. Repent of your sin. That means turn around. Change your mind. Stop living that way and follow Jesus. That's the good news. Why is it good news? First of all, you can be saved. And second of all, the way you can be saved is not going to preclude anybody. You can be saved as a terrorist, as a, as a radical anarchist. You can get saved as somebody that just grew up and did good things but was never born again. A murderer, a pornographer, a liar, a thief. They all can be saved through the gift of God. That's good news. And those of us that think we're kind of hot stuff don't really appreciate that good news sometimes. But I'll tell you, those of us that know what kind of people we are and know what we really deserve, we're the ones that come in and hear people talk about the grace of God and we can just barely contain it. And if you're a crier, the tears flow. And if you're more like me, it's, thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Y'all think I pray loud in here. You should see it when nobody else is in here. Because it's good news. This is it. You cannot just skip this piece. Because there are a lot of folks that want to kind of tag on to church because it's inspiring and it tells me about living my best life. All right, but hold on a minute. You cannot enter into the works prepared beforehand until you have received the gift of Jesus' grace apart from works. This comes first. And as those of us who believed on the Lord Jesus and have benefited from the good news, we commit our lives to spreading the good news. That's why I labor so hard to make sure we don't get distracted even by good things. There are other important things, but this is the most, most important thing at Calvary Chapel Trustville. Amen? The most, most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are other things that are important to us. Let's talk about the most important thing. It's not the most, most important thing, but it is the most important thing. Okay? This is the Word of God. The Word of God. You might say, what is that? Well, there's one under your seat. If you don't have one, take it home. Take it home. We want you to have it. We'll buy more. I'd be delighted if we ran out of Bibles. Everybody took some home. Because you have to ask this question, all right, you believe in this gospel. And the gospel does come first, right? People were getting saved before the canon was even completed. There are people that cannot read who are saved, right? However, how do we know anything about God? How do we know for sure anything about Jesus? Maybe you think you're, you're really slick and you're really intellectual and you're saying, well, you don't have any proof or any evidence. I do. It's called the Bible. We begin with the Bible. It is our standard. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, all Scripture. How much Scripture? So how much of not Scripture? None. All Scripture is, I love this, breathed out by God. It takes four words in English to give one Greek word. Theopneustos. Theos means God. Neustos is like pneuma, right? Like the, the wind. So God breath. Breathed out by God. So imagine, we talk about inspiration, but it's also like expiration. Like, God breathed out his word. And profitable. Profitable. Like, I don't know, man. I've read some of those genealogies. I don't know how profitable that is. Well, you're wrong. Profitable for teaching. So don't tell me you shouldn't teach parts of the Bible at church, friends. It's all profitable for teaching. For reproof. 
for correction. You ever read the Bible and find out you were wrong about something? It's not always fun. That's usually, what does the Greek say? <laughs> Same thing it says in English, just says it in Greek. For training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There it is again. If our purpose is to make disciples of people that are going to find their purpose that God has given them and live it out to the fullest, how do you get ready for that? Paul says, all Scripture, the Word, trains you to do the works God has called you to do. I've got three I words that you need to know. They're very, very important that describe what we believe about the Bible. Number one, the Word is inspired. I already talked about that. It's not just man's word. God used men to write it. People often say that like we don't know that. Well, wasn't the Bible written by men? It's like, uh, yeah. You know, we're, we're not Muslims who believe that God just took hold of the pen and they just kind of woke up and said, hey, this is pretty good stuff. Nor are we Mormons who believe that I was digging in my backyard and I found some gold plates. Oh, that, that way I can't change it. That's much more secure than, than plain old paper. No, God used people, as He always does. But He used His power as God to ensure that the exact words were written. Which leads us to number two. It's inerrant. Yeah. Inerrant. It means without error. Everything the Bible makes a claim about is true. Okay? The factual claims that the Bible makes. And if you say, well, I don't know about that. I, don't, I thought this was true. I thought that. Then take the time to humble yourself before the Bible of the Lord who has saved your soul. Okay, I don't get it, but God seems to know more about it than I do. Inerrant. Number three, it's infallible. What's the difference? Inerrant means it is true in all of its claims. Infallible means that it is right in all of its moral pronouncements. That when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, that's the right idea. When the Bible says, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, that's the right idea. It's infallible. When it says there is no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ, it's infallible. Not like you and I. So those are three I words. It's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. The Bible fits us for the good works that God has. And I will tell you, sometimes I will have a, a whim that strikes me where it's like, oh God, I don't, I don't want to open the Bible. I just want to hear from you. How silly is that? I've heard folks say, oh, that meeting was so great, we didn't even open our Bibles. Makes me go, oh boy. <laughs> and then they tell me how it went, and I go, yeah, I can tell you didn't open your Bible the whole time. God might have had something to say about it, some of that. Now, I'm not saying everything has to be an expositional teaching, but the Word is what the Holy Spirit gave us. It, it shapes us and trains us. This is why we study the Bible verse by verse, because it's the most important thing. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says they read from the book of the law and gave the sense so that the people could understand it. We are working overtime at this place to stop biblical illiteracy in the United States of America. I'm tired of people not knowing what the Bible says or what it means. So we're working hard. That's the most important thing. If you want to be a complete Christian, you need the Bible. However, there is another most important thing. It's not the most most important thing. <laughs> But it's the other most important thing. And that's the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. Now listen, many people don't understand this, and that's fine. But they'll say, the most important thing is the Word of God. And that's got to be primary. And the power of the Spirit is, you know, it's, it's, it's over here. But most important thing is the Word. And other folks say, no, no, the most important thing is the power of the Spirit. We love the Bible. The power of the Spirit comes first. They don't understand. They are both the most important thing. 
They are both the most important thing. I read the first one first. Why? No reason. Don't read into it. The power of the Spirit. If you love the Word of God, it's going to tell you to love the power of the Spirit. And if you love the power of the Spirit, man, you're going to love the book he wrote. <laughs> when Jesus sent the church out to begin making disciples, he said, wait. Not yet. Why? Because I'm going to send you power from on high. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Did you know that Jesus likewise did no ministry until he had received the power of the Holy Spirit? 30 years. People love to ask foolish questions like, what do you think Jesus was doing in those 30 years? Nothing that's very interesting to you. He was making tables and chairs. He was living in Capernaum and living in Nazareth. He was taking care of his mom. He was fighting with his brother James. Nobody thought anything that special about him. But he was the son of God. Yeah. But he didn't. There's no secret hidden legends of Jesus. It was when he came to the Jordan River and was baptized by John and came up out of that water that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he came back saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the same way, Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem. Acts 1 verse 8, he told the apostles at the top of that mountain, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, they received power from God. Sometimes we don't like to talk about the power of God. We like to talk about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I talk about the instruction of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the glory of the Holy Spirit, but we don't like to talk about the power of the Holy Spirit. It sounds a little weird to me, and there's weird people that believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, they're your brothers and sisters, and they got something right. Now, some other folks need correction on the other things, but that's not this church. Our church needs to be reminded more about the most important thing, which is the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, Every Christian has received a special endowment from the Holy Spirit. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, or for the profit of all, for edification. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, there's gifts that He gives you. Not only do you receive the gift of salvation, you receive presence. Presents. Everybody loves presents. That seems kind of a carnal way to talk about that. No, it's a joyful way. We take everything so serious. And the power of the Holy Ghost comes upon you. He's, he fills you up. Some people, it says, they get their gifts of teaching. Some people get gifts of healing. Some people get gifts of administration. Some people get gifts of giving. Some people get gifts of discernment of spirit. Some people get wisdom. The Holy Spirit empowers every single Christian supernaturally to fulfill the works God has called them to do. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes and seals you for salvation, but you must receive that baptism with power that every Christian in the book of Acts also received. Go read through it. And then you'll have, your whole life will be an adventure of watching the Holy Spirit fill you in the moment for what He's called you to do. This is why we prioritize this. The Christianity is a supernatural endeavor. Do you not realize that? Some people work overtime to strip away anything that seems supernatural from the church in order to make it palatable to those who do not believe in God. Shame on us. Prayer. The gifts of the Spirit. The words even of prophecy are crucial to the church's success. 
How would Paul and Barnabas even have known what God had called them to do if there had not been a word of prophecy given during a prayer meeting? It's important. Calvary Chapel is a charismatic church. If you did not know that, you need to remember that. Go watch the Jesus Revolution movie. You'll know what I'm talking about. It's the most important thing. The power of the Spirit. Like the other most important thing, the Word of God. They work together because it's the same Spirit, right? You've got His written Word and then you've got His power for the moment. It's not the most, most important thing. That's the Gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is the most important thing. There are, though, some other important things for us to talk about. They're not the most or the most, most important thing. But they are important things. And the first one is grace. Grace in all things. This describes how we treat each other. Grace in all things. I've been using that word grace a lot today. Good. It's a good word. We are to act toward people as Jesus did towards us. Grace, remember, means a gift. Jesus gave us salvation when we didn't deserve it. So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the same way, we are to treat each other better than they deserve. Like Dave Ramsey, better than I deserve. But we treat each other better than they deserve. How do you treat your wife? Better than she deserves. How do you treat your husband? Better than he deserves. How do you treat your brothers and sisters in the church? Better than they deserve. Are they bad people? No, they're great people. But I still treat them better than they deserve. Because that's how Jesus treated me. Sometimes in the church, we become like, you know, we're, we're hawks watching each other, just waiting, kind of you know, floating on the air currents. And they go, oh, somebody's sinning! And down we go, and we just rip them to pieces with our talons. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing, but some of y'all have been in those churches, haven't you? Oh, she's here. Yeah, you've, you've had that where you groan when somebody walks in. Yeah, too many of y'all are like laughing right now to know that's not true. Or, oh, this guy's preaching again. I know exactly what he's going to preach about. And he's going to look me dead in the eye while he says it too. When in reality, that's not how interaction between church members is supposed to go. Romans 15 verses 1 and 2 says, We who are strong or mature in the Lord have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul says, some of y'all who are stronger in the Lord and more mature, rather than spending all your time berating and shaking your finger in the face of these weak Christians, it's time for y'all to start doing what they need more. You know, we talk about good works. We talk about pursuing the things God has called us to do. And if we're not careful, we can only think of that in terms of accomplishments. That's a big part of it. But also a big part of it is the way that we act towards one another. How many disciples of Jesus Christ have no love in their life? How many so-called Christians are harsh with people? You know, it's funny. I'm going to go ahead and stick my foot into a little hot-button issue just for a second, just to make a point. But, you know, all the people that are talking today about Christian nationalism... And how the church needs to be in charge and the church needs to govern. The church needs to set up righteousness. They are the most angry, spiteful, bitter people you've ever seen in your life. And not one of them has ever been able to explain to me, to my satisfaction, how does Jesus' commandment to turn the other cheek and not resist the one who's evil fit into your philosophy? Not saying it can't. I'm just saying they're vengeful people. They're going to use Jesus' name in order to enact political retribution. When in reality... 
We're following Jesus. Jesus. Remember him? Let the little children come to me. Let them come to me, for such, to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, what does it take to be great in your kingdom? And he goes, hey, uh, little girl, come over here. Hey, good to see you. How old are you? Six years old? Awesome. You got to be like this. You like this. And Peter's like, I don't know if I'm into that, man. Judas certainly wasn't. He says, listen, guys, this is not optional. If you're not like little children, you will never receive the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells us to bear with the failings of one another. To love your enemies. That's the first thing you learned that Jesus said, and you still don't do it. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Wasn't a lot of that going on during COVID, I'm ashamed to say. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Well, I don't have to love them. They hate me. Eh, wrong. You want to do that? Go find some other religion. You're not following Jesus. That's why when we get in the church, we actively love one another. We don't go, oh, yes, I love all of God's people. Of course I do. And then you know, where John goes, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. The old man John, he's still the son of thunder, wasn't he? If you say you love God and hate your brother, the truth is not in you. You've not met. You don't know Jesus. You can't be full of hate and say you'll love Jesus. To actively love. To find what is loving about each person in this room, learn it, and prayerfully cultivate it until you love them too. Well, what if we just don't get along? You know, the Bible at one point says, put up with one another. <laughs> the old King James has a real night, you know, bearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with somebody? He's to put up with them. Well, maybe we should just find different churches. There, there are no such thing as different churches, guys. There's only one church. And guess what? There's going to be people in that other church, too. Amen. And you're one of those people. Put up with one another. At Calvary Chapel Trustville, we lay aside our opinions for the sake of the mission. Because there's things that are not related to the gospel that we in here have different opinions about. The way you ought to dress. In the Lord's church. Ooh, see how quiet it got. Don't you love that? Everyone's <laughs> like, oh, don't move. He might think he's talking about me. <laughs> yeah, the way you dress. Some of y'all are like, what about dressing your best for Christ? You know, I never even heard that until I went to a Baptist high school for the first time. I'm like, that's not in the Bible. I've since learned it's not a big deal, Tyler. It's okay if somebody wants to dress up for church. But it's also not a big deal if somebody wants to wear shorts and flip-flops and a tank top. Well, that doesn't seem very respectful. Well, then don't you dress that way. Or how about the way people keep their hair? This was a big one in the, in the Jesus movement when the hippies were coming in. Yeah, you can come to our church, just cut your hair first. Shave your beard, put on shoes. And Pastor Chuck was like, who cares? It doesn't touch your heart. You know, you're going to cut off the hair that's going to somehow make their heart pure and righteous before the Lord? Silly. But it can be things that are a little more significant than that. We have different opinions about what kind of movies are appropriate for Christians to watch. Well, that seems pretty obvious and straightforward, really, because the Bible doesn't say the word movie anywhere. <laughs> but the kind of music Christians ought to listen to, or the kind of places Christians ought to go for entertainment, to have fun. I'm not talking about sin now. Leave that aside. What about the things Christians ought to eat and drink? You're talking about alcohol? Yeah, I am. There's differences of opinion in this room, guys. Well, things that Christians ought to smoke. The Bible doesn't talk about smoking either does talk about getting high. I don't think I'm talking about that now for a second, okay? 
So I, I, there's, this is kind of how Christians are. It's how we're supposed to be. Okay, but you know what? If the Bible doesn't talk about it, keep your opinion to yourself. Somebody asks you, then you can tell them. You tell them respectfully and kindly. Every one of our home fellowship leaders, did you know this, had instruction during the time of the coronavirus to not let anybody bring up a discussion about the vaccine. You know why? Because it has nothing to do with Jesus. And people were going to get angry and start yelling and shouting at each other. And I am so proud of the way our church conducted itself during that time. I said, well, you should have said something. No, we shouldn't have. It has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Nothing to do with reaching the lost. So we don't care. You care. You have your opinion, your position, but leave everybody else alone. Some people, like, they say, you know the Bible doesn't say that we can't drink. It just says don't get drunk. Yeah, you're right. But then that person wants to become the evangelist of the whole world of, like, craft beer. <laughs> Bible says keep your liberty to yourself. If you have that freedom, keep it to yourself, and don't feel like you've got to go around changing everybody's mind. We have grace towards one another. We major on the majors only. <clears throat> That's the important thing. It's not the most important thing or the most, most important thing, but it's an important thing. Here's another important thing, very closely related. Love for the lost. This is the important thing, to have love for the lost. The whole reason we're here is because love was showed to the lost. John 3.16, for God so had a desire to display his own glory and show the world how wonderful he loved the world. He gave his only begotten. What kind of love do you call that? I've got three sons, and you still can't have one. I've got extras, like, and I'm still not going to send one for you. You're great, but come on, man. But God loved you so much, he gave his only begotten son. That's why we're here. And that's how we're supposed to be also. The thought of men dying and going to hell should break your heart. Look how Paul put it. Romans 9, verses 2 and 3 says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? For I wish, I could wish, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul says, I just cannot get over the fact that my fellow Israelites crucified Jesus and don't even care. That they don't want to believe. They won't receive the grace of Almighty God. I just can't handle that. God, how about me? Can I go to hell and everybody else be saved? That's love for the lost. Love for the lost. Turning inward is the mark of a dying church. When a church starts to look only to itself, to preserve itself and to support itself, that's the mark that the church is getting ready to die. It might take decades but our whole purpose for existence, remember, is to spread the gospel and make disciples. Make disciples. To go out to the people who are dying and make them into disciples. To go to the ones washing their nets by the Sea of Galilee and say, come on, I'll make you fishers of men. That's why we're here, to have a love for the lost. Many people have a, have a righteous indignation towards the lost. Some of y'all were engaging in a little righteous indignation last night. Watching TV, on the internet, posting something online, letting people know just what you think about your kinsmen who are separated from Christ. Have those opinions. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But do you also have a love in your heart? When is the last time you had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart for the people that are so deceived that they're going around trying to tell children that they ought to mutilate their bodies and transgender? Do we oppose those people? With all of our heart, we do. But how lost is that person? That person's going to hell. 
They're going to spend eternity in hell, in torment, separated from God. Does that ever break your heart? Does it ever break your heart at the thought of, young people are leaving our church today. Outrageous! How dare they? Or are you heartbroken about that? How do you feel? Do you love the lost? You've got to cultivate a love for the lost. Here's a dangerous thing. You pray for God to help you love the lost. He'll do it. And then you'll wake up one day and you'll start to feel a heaviness in your chest that you didn't feel before for that neighbor that just drives you bananas. When you walk into the store and you see that they're now starting to sell all sorts of witchcraft things, getting ready for Halloween, and you see somebody over there looking at it, and you're like, that woman, how dare she? She's going to do something like that, not realizing that woman has no connection with God or spiritual things, and she's willing to buy something in the, in the bookstore to try to help her connect with God. That's the kind of love that caused you to go over there and say, you don't need these things. Would you like to meet God for real? I can introduce you to him. That's love for the lost. And then you've got to act on it. What's the best thing you can do for a lost person? Go tell them that Jesus loves them. They don't want to hear that. Who cares? They need to hear that. Some of the most hostile, aggressive, angry people you'll ever meet are the most desperate and broken. The one that you walk up to and say, hey, brother, Jesus loves you. Get that out of my face. You get your religion out of here. I don't want anything to do with that. Okay, have a nice day. That's the guy that needs that. When's the last time somebody told that guy, I love you? Well, he might have lots of people that love him. Yeah, people that feel loved don't act that way. People that know where their soul is headed don't act like that. I've told you before, I spent a lot of time in the, the heavy metal music scene when I was a young man. And you see these guys with the big big jeans and the chains and the black makeup and the long hair and all very like pentagrams on their shirt and like you know spikes on their wrists and you know the average you know I mean I see how I'm dressed right now but you know the average clean cut person goes shame what a, what a thing don't talk to that young man sweet don't don't talk to her don't go to, those people are the most sad broken people it's amazing how many people that I met in that scene that were molested as children or beaten by their, by their husbands or their wives or girlfriends and boyfriends. It's amazing how many of them have cut themselves regularly because they just can't stand to go another day. And they're just, it's, it builds up so much that they begin to slash their wrists and their legs and their shoulders. And they're, they're so heartbroken. They're so afraid. They want to put on this, this mask that nobody would even come close to them. And that even when you do, they're going to think you're, you're just as phony as they are. And they're going to begin to call you out for it and get in your face. And you say, hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Oh, I don't believe in Jesus. Hail Satan, man. What do they think they believe that? They're trying to trigger you. They're trying to make you run away. That's when you stand in and you say, really? You're going to root for the loser? <laughs> hey, man, we're all losers here. So I don't think you're a loser. And turns out, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. But he goes home and he didn't think I'm a loser. So you're making up a story. No, I've seen this happen over and over again. And you get somebody sitting there with, she's got dark eyeliner on her face and powdered it white and the long black hair and scary looking and she's sitting there just smiling and wrapping her arms around you and it's so good to see you, so good to be here. Why? Because she's finally found the love of God. Christians have to be the people that are not offended by the lost. Who don't see, huh, we don't do that. Jesus went and touched lepers. You can go up and say hello to a gangster. Yeah. 
right? You can go up and say something, everybody got their hair sticking out. You can go to somebody that is very obviously homosexual and parading it for the whole world to know. Imagine you go up to them and say, hey, do you know Jesus loves you and died on the cross for your sins? And what are they going to do? They're going to respond to a bunch of prepared responses. They're going to come flowing out of their mouth. They're going to get loud. They're going to get angry. They're going to shout at you. But you just stand there and you say, oh, but you don't understand. Jesus loves you. Jesus tells me that I was, I was that I have to change the way I am. Say, so, no, no, no. The devil's telling you you've got to change the way you are. Gee, you are perfect just the way you are. Well, I'm, well I'm, you guess what? I'm going through my transition. You can't stop me. Why would you do that? You're lovely. Why would you do that? Don't you know how wonderful God made you? Well, I'm going to do it. What do you say to that? I say, I still love you. I just hope you don't do it because I want, I want you to have a full life. But you can still find forgiveness in Christ, even if you do that. Here's my number. Give me a call. What will that do to a generation that thinks God has abandoned them? Love the lost. Invite people to church, guys. Can't you do that? I'll preach them the gospel. You get them here. I promise I'll preach them the gospel. But you are equipped to do that. And I am happy to train you and teach you how to do that. And the last thing here. The important thing, the important thing, is rebuilding the foundations. This is the last thing we're going to talk about today. We're talking about, I guess you could call them values, the things that we prioritize here as a church, our priorities. Last one here is rebuilding the foundations. I kind of mentioned some cultural issues a second ago. And uh, you got two bad reactions to the culture changing and falling away from Jesus Christ. First of all, learn to tell the difference between culture changing and culture rebelling. They're not the same thing. Right? Just because things change, styles change, opinions change, music change, church changes, doesn't mean that it's rebellion against God. Where there is rebellion against God, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say this, even though it wasn't in my notes, because what happens is if you start to call out the sin of the culture and you conflate that with things that have nothing to do with Christ, you're going to lose credibility immediately. People walking away from Jesus and they're believing these horrible ideas that they picked up in college. And, and you know what else they're doing? They're listening to that crazy music that just, just there's no beauty to it anymore. I don't want to hear a word you have to say now, because now you're just the old man saying, get off my lawn. That's not what Christians do. But here's the two things. We can complain, and we do an awful lot of that. We're good at that, complaining about the culture. Or we hide. We hide. I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. You know, how many people's kids are drifting away from Jesus, but somebody can't bear the thought, so they just kind of ignore it and just kind of pretend they don't see it happening, even though everybody else is warning them. Now, most Christians today are not hiding anymore. They're complaining. What we are to do, though, not either of those things, is to shine the light. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Shine your light before men so that they may see your good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Isaiah 58, do you want to hear something? There's a verse that people love to quote. It's from the Psalms where it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? And it's how often I've heard that preached as a, therefore, we are doomed, and the only thing left is the rapture. Well, actually, there is something you can do when the foundations are destroyed. Isaiah 58, verses 10 through 12, says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as the noonday, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. 
The Lord says, if you begin to walk in my ways, you will rebuild the foundations that are broken. But Christians have to be aware of this and not get caught up in the same stream as everybody else. So here at our church, what do we do? We teach on these things when they come up. We do outreaches. I like to pick like hot button outreaches. Like what are the things everybody's really concerned or worried about? Let's go take the gospel there. Through prayer, we work to address evil and point people back to Christ. But what has to separate the Christian, and one day I'm going to give a whole message on this. Let's, let's do, use a math illustration for a minute, all right? Don't lose me. It's okay. It's not a good time for a bathroom break, okay? It's just, here we go. You guys remember graphs? You've got the x-axis, right? Left and right. You've got the y-axis. It goes up and down. Good. So yeah, somebody's in school. This is awesome. Knows what I'm talking about. Those are the two dimensions, up and down, right? And side to side. Those are the two dimensions in which the world lives. The world very often gives us binary choices. It gives us, you can do this, or you can do that. Here are the only ways we can fix this, right? Shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's how the world views things. A Christian, however, has God's perspective on these things. And we are to live in the third dimension. We'll call that the Z-axis. So if you've got side to side, up and down, forward and back is the Z-axis. A Christian comes in like Jesus did and provides a third option that nobody was looking for. A church ought to have a slightly different approach to the problems of the day than everybody else. We discussed, like we did this morning, we were talking about Israel. You can talk about Israel in carnal ways, but we come at these things theologically by the leadership of the Holy Spirit through His Word and through His voice in our hearts. We provide solutions no one else can see. You know how God likes to bring about change? Revival. There ain't no politician sitting anywhere. So, you know, what if we, uh, what if we worked up a revival? That would really help, you know, kind of solve all these national problems. But the thing is, we can't do that either. So, you know what we need is this. You're still thinking X, Y. It's coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, how do you see this? And what do you want done? That's how we rebuild the foundations. All that is really to say that we as a church are culturally aware and engaged, but we do it Jesus' way. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? How about you render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God what belongs to God? How many times did Jesus do that? Where they would say, it's either this or this. Do we stone this woman or do we let her go? How about he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone? That's how Jesus dealt with things. Now this church is going to deal with things too. That's the important thing, rebuilding the foundations. The other important things are a love for the lost and grace and all things. But they're not the most important things. The most important thing is the Word of God, and the other most important thing is the power of the Holy Spirit. But then none of those things are the most, most important. Most, most important is the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the characteristics that define our mission, how we go about things. Everything is based on the gospel. We get every idea from the Word of God. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We treat one another with grace and kindness. We have a heartbroken attitude towards those that are lost, and we address cultural issues from God's perspective, not man's. I believe that when every believer in the gospel starts believing the Bible, starts walking in the Spirit, acting with grace and love, that's when the transformation starts to happen. God provides solutions that nobody was looking for. The best thing you can do to change the world is to find your calling and do it with all your heart. 
And that is why we as a church have committed ourselves to this kind of ministry, to bringing every Christian to the place where they're doing what God has called them to do. Because if we're all doing that, I mean, Jesus had how many disciples? How many disciples? 12. 12 and then he lost one. 11. Okay. How'd those guys do? Fill up 11 guys with the power of the Holy Spirit and send them out. They had help. About 120 people in the upper room. Guess what? It's about how many people come to this church. And every Christian thing you see in the entire world is because of those people filled with the Holy Spirit. So, are we going to talk about limitations on what God can do through this place? We're trying to raise up heroes for this generation. And we do it by keeping these priorities, these important things. 